1 Corinthians 5, dealing with the case of incest. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So, when you are assembled and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens a whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not, as, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Thanks, Laura. When I was young, I wanted to be a spy. But when I found out that the life of a spy was very different to the life of James Bond, I became disinterested. The role of a spy is to live in a different country and report back to your sending country secret information. The key to good spying is blending in, assimilating, speaking, eating, drinking, socializing, and living a life exactly like those around you, drawing no attention. There can be no distinction between the spy and the native. And if there is, then your cover is blown. The life of a spy, the blending in, the assimilating, is the exact opposite to the life of a Christian. The spy must not show any signs of their true nature, whereas the Christian is to show their true nature. The Christian is a new person. Heaven is their home and Jesus is their Lord. This will massively change how the Christian speaks, how they eat, how they dress, how they socialize, and how they live their life. There will be a great distinction between the Christian and the world around them. 
The spy must hide their true nature. The Christian must show their true nature. Jesus has raised the Christian out of their old life and into a new life with him. And because of this new life, because of this new nature, we will, and we must be, distinctive in the world. To put it a different way, the, church, the, sorry, the world's culture must not permeate the church. In fact, the world's culture must not permeate the church, and the church's culture must permeate the world. And that is exactly what Paul is addressing here in 1 Corinthians 5. The world's culture must not permeate the church, whereas the church's culture must permeate the world. The problem in the Corinthian church, and the problem here in the gate church, is a loss of distinction. Our church culture has merged too much with the world's culture. And Paul wrote this letter to address just that. He addresses this problem in three stages. Firstly, he calls out the unrepentant sinner, someone who was living just like, if not worse than, the world. That person was unrepentant. The sin was so outward, obvious, and significant. So as a result, Paul says that that person must leave. He instructs the Corinthian church to exercise church discipline. Secondly, Paul reminds the Corinthian church who they are, whose they are, and he encourages them to be who they are, to live out this newness of life, to be distinctive, to become who they are in Jesus. And thirdly, he calls them to show who they are, to let their distinctiveness in Christ be seen by the watching world. So let's work through them now. So firstly, he calls out the unrepentant sinner. He shows the Corinthians the need for church discipline. There was sin in the church, awful sin in the church. Look with me at verse 1 in the Bibles in front of you. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. By the way it was written, we can imply that this man was having sex with perhaps his stepmom, maybe his aunt, or maybe even his real mum. Paul's criticism and prohibition of this relationship is directly from Leviticus chapter 18. And this is where God sets out boundaries around certain family relations with which people cannot be sexually intimate. Not just is, not just is this person's intimate relationship prohibited within the Bible, it is also deemed wrong by non-Christians. Paul describes it as a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. This man's life, this sin that he was engaging in, this lifestyle, was a public contradiction of the life that characterizes the church. Where the church should be distinctive for its holiness in Jesus, the Corinthian church was distinctive for its sin. This sin was a big problem, not just because of what it was, but because of the effect it was having on the rest of the church, the people in the church. Because look at verse 2. I, and you are proud, he says. Shouldn't you have gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? 
Just like us today, those in Corinth were obsessed with autonomy of self or like self-freedom. It's a big thing in Corinth and it's a big thing in day, today. And that is why they were proud of this relationship. They saw this man's sin as an a a expression of their freedom in Christ. They were proud that it was showing that Christians can do whatever they want, even though that isn't true. Paul is appalled by this. He's absolutely appalled by this, and he holds the church and the man accountable. He says they are both wrong in different ways. He says that the church was proud and it should have gone into mourning. The church should have been sickened by this behavior and grieved over its presence among them. Then Paul says that the man ought to be put out of fellowship because of his behavior. This man's life was making out as though unrepentant sin was acceptable in church culture. All in all, the church's culture had merged too much with the world's culture. And so, he then lays out the case and the practicalities of church discipline. Church discipline goes by different names, and people have viewed it as quite different things throughout church history. Perhaps a simple, maybe overly simple, way to see it is any form of correction from one believer to another, whether small and informal, such as a a chat after the service about an area of someone's life, all the way up to formally removing someone from membership and prohibiting them from taking the Lord's Supper. Important to remember through all of this is that church discipline was given by God to the church in order to help restore people in their faith. It is, call, it is to call the wayward into repentance. It is never discipline for discipline's sake. It's a gift of God for the good of the person and for the good of the church. Jesus actually teaches his disciples about discipline and correction in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, Jesus lays out how to respond and correct a brother or sister who sins. The method is gradual and it's loving, starting by addressing the sinning person one-on-one and with the desire and the hope that this one-on-one interaction will lead to restoration and it will lead to repentance. However, if that person refuses to listen, Jesus teaches to go back in a small group, perhaps two or three others. Again, that hopefully that person will repent and be restored. However, if that person doesn't, then the matter and the area of sin is to be brought before the church publicly. And if the person doesn't repent following this, then they're to be removed. And in Jesus' words, treated like a pagan or an unbeliever. Paul is applying this teaching of Jesus to the Corinthian situation. He's calling the Corinthians to step up. Look at at verse 3 and 4. Paul is reminding the church of their responsibility to judge. He's calling the Corinthians to wake up from their complacency, wake up from this worldliness permeating the church and challenge the man. He's saying reclaim your distinction for being in Christ rather than merging with the world in its sin. And importantly, Paul reminds the Corinthians of the magnitude of this. This is not just a few people getting together to discipline the man. Jesus is central to it. 
And after all, it's Jesus' church. Look at verse 4. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, the power of our Lord Jesus is present. The judgment and challenge from the church in disciplining a member does not just sit with a leader or the elders. It is the role of the church in the presence of Jesus. And this is what Paul is addressing. And this is why Paul is saying the church's response to this sin was so wrong. Paul shouldn't have to be leaving, leading the Corinthian church in this. They ought to have moved towards it themselves, moved toward discipline themselves. However, the church's culture had merged too much with the world's culture. I think it's important to note that the reason Paul goes straight to the removal of this person, rather than working through perhaps gentler and more discreet methods, is because this man's sin was already before the church, and it was actually all before the, already before the watching world. And this was doing absolutely nothing to bring this man into repentance. The man is so unrepentant, the sin is so outward, and it's so significant that the removal of him from the church was necessary. And this is why we see in verse 5, Paul says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And we could read this and we go, hang on, Paul. We're getting church discipline here. But what's this about handing him over to Satan and the destruction of the flesh? The reason Paul says this and the reason he speaks like this is because that is what it is. When a church removes someone from the church, which means removing them from membership and from communion, they are no longer recognizing that person to be living like a believer anymore. Don't hear me wrong. The church is not capable of removing someone from salvation. No one can do that. The removal of the person in the church is saying that their unrepentance and their continuation in significant sin, despite numerous challenges from the church, is not the life of a Christian. They are not living the life of a believer. Therefore, the church is removing them from membership as they are not living in accordance with Christ. And the reason this is so significant is because the church is literally handing them over to Satan. The individual has disconnected them from um, Christ and disconnected himself from his church, Christ's church, by disregarding the Bible's teaching and disregarding the church's rebuke. By this person's own decision, they are no longer under the protection of the church. Think of it being like uh, dropped in occupied enemy territory all alone. The sufferings of the world will come, and the church will not be part of, sorry, the person will not be part of the church community. And most importantly, the person will not be engaging with God through prayer, through worship, and his word. In his other letters, Paul often uses the word flesh to show a worldly way of life that is self-centered and self-sufficient, a life that is not reliant on Jesus. So when Paul says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, he envisages that when this man is separate from the support of the church community, he will find his self-sufficiency, his self-centeredness, his self-reliance, his sin, destroyed 
leading him to a change of heart. And this is the prayer for all those subject to this level of church discipline. Repentance and restoration. And so, even now, even with the removal of this man from membership, there is still hope. Yes, he says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And the reason for that follows, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. As I said earlier, the goal of church discipline, from its softest level to its most serious, is not just shame and punishment. It is the movement of the sinner towards repentance and a life reflective of the saving work of Christ. Church discipline is necessary. And this case in today's passage proves it. In most cases, a meaningful challenge or rebuke will be all that is needed to help point someone back to Jesus, to point them back into repentance and into worship. However, on occasion, the removal of someone from church might be all that can be done for the good of that person and for the good of the church. As I said at the beginning, the world's culture must not permeate the church. As we are a new people in Jesus, we are to be distinctive in the world. And we are to make sure of this, firstly as individuals and also as a body. Killing sin by the grace of God, nailing it to the cross of Christ and finding joy and freedom in forgiveness. If you're stuck in sin today, something you can't shake, something that you might call a habit, if you're stuck in that kind of sin today, something you feel you cannot stop and you've never confessed it to anyone, or perhaps you've confessed it to someone and that person's not challenging you or walking with you through it. Then me and a few others, uh, me, Jolly, and Bex will be at the back. Please come and speak to us after this message. We would love to pray with you. Confess your sin. We'll pray for you and we'll walk alongside you. And by the grace of God, you will find freedom. So I say, come on then. The time is now. Let us merge no longer with the world. You were made for more than being enslaved to sin. And that is exactly what Paul moves on to in verse 6. In these verses, Paul reminds the Corinthian church who they are. And he encourages them to be who they are. And he starts by issuing a warning about their complacency towards sin. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? As I mentioned earlier, the Corinthians had been boasting about this man's sinfulness and presumably the freedom that it expressed. Paul is challenging this and says that if you allow this sin to remain, then it will actually destroy you all. It will be your end. In fact, it already started to do so. They were not seeing sin for what it was anymore. They were seeing sin as something amusing. They were seeing sin as an expression of freedom. They had become complacent to sin. And that is a very, very bad place to be. And this happens only when the world's culture merges too much with the church's culture. You become complacent and you become 
tolerant of sin. We may look at the Corinthian church today and we'd say we'd never be sort of tolerant or acceptant of such a major incestuous sin. And actually, maybe we wouldn't. But there's a whole host of perhaps what we would call more acceptable sins that we happily tolerate. What about discontentment, unthankfulness, anxiety and frustration, pride, selfishness, lack of self-control, impatience and irritability? Yes, at the outset, these sins might not be as outward or significant as others. But if these sins live in us, and we are complacent and we're unrepentant of them, and we don't seek to daily kill them by the grace of God, they will grow and they will grow. And their cancerous tendrils will infect us so deeply that they will kill us. You might say, how can discontentment kill me? Well, I ask you, what is the end goal of sin? It's death. Sin brings death. The wages of sin are death. And this is why repentance is so important. Because through repentance, that death that our sin claims is the death of Jesus. That is why Paul is challenging the whole church in this issue and not just the individual. That is why he says, don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Yeast is often referred to in the Bible as to represent something sinful which infects whatever it touches. Paul is warning them of what sin does when it is not repented of and when it is tolerated. He's saying, you're a new people. Don't let sin take you down. Sin is not to be tolerated. Sin is not to be laughed at or boasted about. It is evil. It brings death. Sin destroys people and families and communities. When we look at this, it's important to see the way Paul says, verse 7, the way Paul explains it. He says in verse 7, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new and leavened batch as you really are. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. The Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Jesus has been crucified. So you really are a new people in him. This is your identity. This is who you are. And because this is who you are, you're to get rid of the old yeast. Because Jesus has been sacrificed, because you're a new people in him, you're to get rid of the sin. It's that way around. That little phrase in the middle of verse 7 that says, so that you might be a new 11 batch. You can put it a different way like this. Be who you are. Become what you already are. Possess your possessions. You're new, so be new. Get rid of sin. Not so that you can be saved, no. Because you are saved. In order to truly grasp this, we need to remember something. It is something common to forget, and the devil will play on it after this sermon unless you hear what I've just said 
in the context of what I'm about to say. If you're a Christian, and you've been a Christian for more than two minutes, you will have sinned. You won't have loved God enough. And if you've been a Christian any longer than two minutes, well, you can name the way you've sinned in the last 24 hours. This side of eternity, until Jesus returns, or we um, die and go to be with him, we'll continue to wrestle with sin. In the words of Paul today, we will continue to be the new unleavened batch, seeking to get rid of the old yeast, to be who we really are. What Paul is getting at here is the church's complacency, tolerance, and acceptance of unrepentant sin. What the church is removing this man for is unrepentant sin. That is the problem. Repeated unrepentant sin has no life life in the Christian or in the church. Sin is awful. It is everything that is wrong in the world. And as Christians, we're no longer slaves to it. Sin is no longer our identity. We are Jesus's. But yes, we will continue to sin until we are in eternity, until we are made perfect with Jesus. So when we sin, we should hate it. We should grieve. We should repent. Ask God for forgiveness. We then to trust in Christ's atoning work on the cross, that our debt truly is paid, that our, we have forgiveness truly before God. We're to do our best to earthly rectify our earthly consequences of our sin. And then we're to go forward in peace, to go forward in joy and freedom, knowing that our debt is paid by Jesus. Before we move on to my third point, let me just touch on verse 8. Paul, again, is referring to the Passover festival. Jesus was crucified at the same time the Passover celebrate. He is our Passover lamb, the ultimate Passover lamb, the final sacrifice, the only atonement for sin. And that is why Paul is referring to him this way here. The Corinthians are those whose sins have been removed by Jesus' faithful work, his work as the atoning Passover lamb. And we, like they, must celebrate our deliverance from sin without any compromise with the things from which we've been set free. Otherwise, the worship and community of the church becomes a falsehood. We are people living in the shadow of the cross. Clinging to sin is not what we do. We confess it, and in our forgiveness, we can shout hallelujah. Because now we can truly celebrate. We can truly join in in worship and in our day-to-day life, having been forgiven. Nothing robs joy like sin. Nothing brings joy like forgiveness. Let us take sin seriously as a church. Because we're a forgiven people. So let us keep the festival not with old bread leavened with malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Or in other words, let us celebrate. 
not with sin, but with the joy of forgiveness through Jesus. Because we are a new people, we are to be distinctive in Jesus. And third, in the final verses of this chapter, Paul writes to the Corinthians about their interactions with the outside world. He calls them to show who they are, to let their distinctiveness in Christ be seen by the watching world. In one sense, the earlier part of this chapter we've looked at, Paul's warning the Corinthians that the, the world's culture must not permeate the church, as I've said. And now in this part, he's saying the church culture must permeate the world. In verse 9, Paul refer, refers to a, a previous letter that is written to the Corinthians, a letter we don't have. It was not the will of God for it to be part of the Bible, and therefore we don't need it. Regardless, whatever that first letter said, people in the Corinthian church were using it to isolate themselves from people in the world. Look at verses 9 and 10. Paul writes this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers, idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. Paul is calling the church to permeate the world, to associate and build relationships with the people of this world. He said if we weren't meant to do that, they would have to leave the world. But actually, this happens all the time. We try and leave the world. Often with good intentions, we create our own little monasteries, don't we? Just without the robes and the weird chanting. It might look different way, like different ways in our lives, but perhaps, perhaps we do it. Do we only fill our calendar with Christian events or with church events? Do we only hang out and socialize with Christians, people from this church? Who do you eat with? Who comes into your house? If the answer to these questions is literally just Christians or people from this church, then actually we're living like monks. We are to be people in this world. Paul says that in this text. And importantly, Jesus lived like this. We are called to follow Jesus in his incarnation and bring his presence to the world. And yet we so often don't. We don't do it. Just like the Corinthians, we hold back. I hold back. I wonder why we do that. Are we afraid, perhaps, of the temptation out there? Do the problems seem too big? It's just easier not to. Paul is telling the church to be in the world, to mix with its people. But as we do, we are to remain pure and not conform to the sinful ways of the world. We're to be distinctive. This is difficult. It genuinely is difficult. Let's look at Jesus. Jesus ate with tax collectors, and he ate with prostitutes, and went into their houses. And you know what? When he did, Jesus didn't lust after the prostitutes. He didn't desire the lavishness of the tax collector's house, despite not having a place to lay his head. Jesus was in the world, really in the world, among its people, but he did not conform to its sin. He's so great, isn't he? Jesus did it, and he calls us to do the same. He said these words during his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 13 to 14. 
You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. In short, because we are a new people, we are to be distinctive in the world. This is what Paul is saying in verses 9 and 10. Show who you are in Jesus by being distinctive in the world. Then Paul goes on to say some pretty difficult stuff in verse 11. Let's read it together again. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Paul is teaching that we mustn't be distant from unbelievers whilst being strict with believers who persist in the sin of the world unrepentantly. The problem with unrepentant sin in the life of someone claiming to be a believer is so serious that Paul makes even sharing a meal with that person off limits. Perhaps it was because to share a meal would show apathy towards that person's willful, sinful state. Paul's warning against the blurring of Christian witness. We ought to be thinking, what will the outside world make of this? A key point with this list is that Paul makes it not just all about sexual sin, not to single out sexual sin as the only thing for which church discipline should be elevated to this level. He gives a list. It's not an exhaustive list. We ought to be aware and take seriously the persistence of other sins. But here is the list from verse 11. Sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. These sins have no place in the church, according to Paul. And if they are in our lives, we are to repent from them and pray for grace to change. We are a new people. We should hate these things, despise them, see them for what evil that they are, not to tolerate them. We are to repent and find joy in the freedom of forgiveness. I'm going to briefly work through the list, just touching on each point. Because actually, when we read lists like this in the Bible, it's easy to gloss over them. So firstly, sexual immorality. This is massive today. Sex outside of marriage is not just expected. It's kind of like a social law. In addition, men having sex with men, women having sex with women, masturbation, porn. These sins are so commonplace. My colleagues just chat about them casually over the desk. There is to be a distinction in the church. There's to be none of it. Sexual immorality cannot be part of the Christian life. But why should it be? The rush of intimacy in sex is far eclipsed by the eternal, unshakable intimacy we have with God through the work of Jesus. 
What the world looks for and cannot find in a bed is found at the foot of the cross. Intimacy and relationship were gifted by the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The greatest and most perfect relationship. And by the work of Jesus on the cross, we are loved by the Father in the same way that he loves his Son, Jesus. Moving on to greed. Again, this is lethal in the West, and sadly, it's rife in the, in the Western church. I read something this week as I was preparing for this about a German minister who lived 500 years ago called Martin. It's a true story as far as I'm aware. Apparently, he threatened to discipline and remove a man from church because this man wanted to sell his house for 400 golden, which was like the currency in the Netherlands. I think I pronounced it correctly. Let's just say 400,000. This man wanted to sell his house for 400,000 pounds. However, he'd bought his house for 30,000 pounds. Martin said that taking into account inflation and a few other bits and pieces, that he should actually sell his house for 150,000 pounds. And to sell his house for 400,000 pounds would have been too much profit and that this level of greed would have called for church discipline. When I read that, it made me realize how cultured I'd become to greed and how much part of my life it'd become. I had to repent. Jesus is better. He promises that God will provide for our needs. We have the joyful freedom through God's provision for us to not be greedy. So why should we be? We have all that we need in Jesus. Idolatry. Again, we are so indoctrinated to this in the West. We have made idols out of marriage, out of social standing, out of careers and the money that we make. We've made idols out of anything that holds our heart greater than Jesus. Why would we chase after idols that have been created by our culture when we've been chased ourselves by a God who pursued us to his death? And by his resurrection, we can know him and he can be with us and he can love us. This reality brings joy in ways that marriage and social standing and any other idol never can. Slanderer. It is popular and it's expected to criticize authority today. That's just the way of things, isn't it? Especially criticizing and running down everything and anyone in the church or the Christian community. Yes, we are to call out sin in leadership and especially Christian leadership. But we're not to throw stones from a mile off where we don't know the ins and outs of a situation. Why would we slander others? when Jesus is right now, 24-7, before God, interceding for us. What Jesus is doing is the opposite of slander. He's pleading his case for us now. Jesus' saving work is forever before the throne of God. That's what him interceding for us means. It's the opposite of slander. Five, drunkard. Drunkenness is such commonplace in our society that we can overlook it in the church. It's more common to laugh at someone getting wasted than actually grieve it. I'm guilty of this. But a Christian must not live like this. Most people 
drink too much, to get something or forget something. We drink too much to get courage or social casual fluidity. We drink too much to forget screw-ups and worries. But as a Christian, we don't need to do that. We have the gospel. Where we need courage, we have prayer. And Jesus promises to be with us always and never forsake us for all eternity. When we are burdened by worries and we think we should drink them away, then we have grace in the blood of Jesus, forgiveness for sin and hope for all eternity. There's no place for drunkenness in the Christian life. And finally, six, swindler. This can also mean a robber or an extortioner, someone who seeks gain at the expense of another. Whether it be profiting over the loss of another in, at work, or business, or at home, this is not the life of a believer. Why? Because we are to gain from the loss of only one man, Jesus. Why would we make money or make gain from another at their expense? when we gain everything from Jesus at his ultimate expense. If you're wrestling with any of the above or anything else, as I said before, come and speak to me or one of the others at the back. Repent and then enjoy God's forgiveness. Enjoy the freedom of repentance. We'll walk alongside you and by God's grace, you'll find freedom. Those sins are so common in the world that not living in such a way will be distinctive. It'll be salty Jesus, shining Christ like a town on the hill. The world will see Jesus' work in you. Paul is teaching we must not be distant from unbelievers in the world whilst being strict with believers who persist in the sin of the world. Paul says in verse 11 about believers who persist unrepentantly in those sins, do not even eat with such people. In our final verses of today, verses 12 and 13, Paul ends this section by reminding the Corinthians that judgment of unbelievers is the responsibility of God alone. But the responsibility of judging believers or in other words, holding believers to standards of living that conform to the work of Jesus, the responsibility for that belongs to the local church. God did not tolerate sin under the old covenant, and neither does he tolerate it in the church. We read, expel the wicked person from among you. And so we come back to my boyhood dream of being a spy. The life of a spy is one of blending in, assimilating to the culture around them. This, as we've seen, is the exact opposite of the life of a Christian. The spy must not show signs of their true nature, whereas the Christian is to distinctively represent their true nature. They're to represent Jesus, both in and outside of the church. We're a new people. Let's let the world know. Shall we pray? Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for passages like today. Though hard and difficult to hear and swallow, 
They are for our good. We thank you for the gift of discipline that is for our good and for the church's good. I pray you'll help us to take sin seriously in our lives and the lives of our fellow believers. I pray that you'll bring conviction of us, Lord, in areas of sin that perhaps we've been glossing over or trying to forget. Lead us into repentance now, I pray. Help us to see the the freedom found in the cross, the freedom in forgiveness, the freedom in repentance. May no one walk out of here, Lord Jesus, clinging on to sin. May we repent of it here. Leave it at the foot of the cross and skip out with our burden off our shoulders, carrying the forgiveness and love of Jesus. We thank you that you made a way for that. Amen.